chapter 7 with me this morning. The passage, we're going to be looking at a variety of pieces of John chapter 7, which is why I didn't print it out for you this morning. Um, And we're going to be spending the next two messages um, diving into the depth of what Jesus is teaching here in this passage and what John is showing us about Jesus Christ. Also, before we jump into this passage, I do want to give some credit to Tim Keller for some of the development of thought that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. Follow along with me as I read John chapter 7, and we're going to be skipping through this entire chapter as we read together. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand. His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. And as we're going through this, I want you to pay attention to the varied responses of different groups of people to how they respond to who Jesus is. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Skipping down to verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this, is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Of him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. 
skipping down to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who had said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we come to an encounter with Jesus Christ through your word, and we come to it with a variety of different reactions, trying to make sense of who you are and what that means for us. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us by your word, that you would reveal yourself to us through it, that we would understand the challenge that Jesus Christ brings to us, and that we would respond in faith. In your son's name we pray, amen. On one Saturday afternoon in 2000, there was an unsuspecting group of moviegoers who showed up at a movie theater outside of Chicago in one of the suburbs to go to the 1.05 p.m. matinee showing of Mel Gibson's action film, uh, Payback. And as they walked into the theater, they were handed a free soft drink and a free bucket of popcorn. And they were asked if afterwards, if they would stick around to answer a few questions about the concessions at this movie theater. What these unwitting moviegoers didn't know was that they were par participating in a study about irrational eating behavior in people. And also what they didn't know was that this popcorn that they received, it was, it was awful. In fact, it was engineered to be awful and wretched popcorn. The popcorn had been made over a week beforehand. It was so stale that it squeaked when people ate the popcorn. Uh, the respondents commented on the popcorn afterwards that some one moviegoer compared it to styrofoam, another person compared it to packing peanuts, and two other people, forgetting that they had been given the popcorn, demanded that they get their money back. Um, some of them who had received this popcorn, had gotten the popcorn in a large bucket, and other people had gotten their popcorn in this extra, extra large bucket, you know, the type of ones that look like a, a bathtub that you have when you go into the movie theater that could be an above-ground swimming pool. But the point was, everybody got their own bucket. Everyone got their own massive bucket of popcorn, so there was no need, to, no need to share. And the researchers were concerned with one particular question, is that they were trying to ask, would people who have bigger buckets of popcorn, literally the bucket was bigger, would people with bigger buckets of popcorn, same amount of popcorn though, would people with bigger buckets actually eat more popcorn than people who had smaller buckets? More specifically, because there was more popcorn than any one person could eat in any of the buckets, the specific research question was this. Would somebody with an inexhaustible, with a larger inexhaustible supply of popcorn, eat more than someone with a smaller inexhaustible supply of popcorn? 
So at the end of the movie, what they did is they came out and they took people's buckets back and they measured the, the popcorn. And the result was surprising. What they discovered is that people who had a larger container ate 53% more popcorn than people who had the smaller, inexhaustible supply of popcorn. In fact, the, the weight between them, it turned out to that the people with the larger buckets, it equated to that they had 21 more mouthfuls of popcorn that they were eating compared to the people with the smaller buckets of popcorn. The results were stunning, but they tried to find a variety of alternate explanations for this. So they said, well, what other, what other explanation could there be? So they ran the study in different states. And they found that in Pennsylvania or Illinois or Iowa or wherever they were, the same thing was true. People eat more popcorn when you give them a larger container, period. So they thought to explain some other options. But people were not eating for pleasure because the popcorn was designed to taste awful and it squeaked when you ate it. People were not driven by a desire to finish their popcorn because the buckets were too big that nobody could finish any of the buckets. And the results were the same whether people were hungry or full. The equation was unyielding. And the obvious answer was this. The bigger the container, the more popcorn people eat. And so after they went through this, they then revealed the results to the people who had participated in the study and said, measure their popcorn and went back to them. And across the board, everybody denied the results. Everyone refused to believe it, and the response of the participants was this. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I, don't get tricked by, I don't get tricked by these things. These things don't trick me. Um, I, I know when I'm full. I know when I'm full. I stop eating when I'm full. Um, I've got good self-control. I'm not, I, I don't do this. I don't overeat. I don't have a compulsive, I don't compulsively eat bad-tasting bad popcorn just because I've got a bigger bucket. And yet, all the people who said that ate 53% more popcorn than the people who had the smaller bucket. You see, there was one unavoidable and obvious answer. And the unavoidable and obvious answer was this, is that people who have larger containers eat more popcorn than people who have an inexhaustible supply, but it's sitting in a smaller container. No matter the explanations people came up with, there is one obvious and unavoidable answer. When we come to this passage of scripture today, we see a variety of people coming up with explanations for who Jesus is. Both today and back then, people try to make sense of who Jesus is, and they come up with a variety of explanations, but there continues to be one and only obvious answer. Throughout the gospel, as we have been journeying through this, Again and again, when people encounter Jesus, they come up with this question. They keep saying, who is this guy? Who is this man? His teaching is unlike anything we have heard before. Here is a man who is claiming to be God. He performs, performs miracles and signs that, that validate his teaching. Who is, who is this guy? How do we make sense of this? In the passage here today, we're going to look at, at least there are more, but we're going to look at five different responses to Jesus in this passage, five different explanations of who he is. We're going to group them together as we go through it, though. But five different explanations, trying to make sense of the data, trying to make sense of the reality and the challenge of Jesus Christ. And what we will see by the end of this is that Jesus, 
confronts us. And that Jesus is a challenge that confronts both non-Christians, but he is also a challenge that confronts and convicts Christians. So let's take a look at several of these different responses. The first response that people come up with Jesus here is that they don't believe the hype. They think that people have made up great stories about Jesus, that Jesus himself is a legend. We see this in verses 3 through 5. His brothers say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you leave here and go down to Judea? That's where Jerusalem is. Why don't you go to that your disciples may see the works that you're doing? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. Now, the way that we know how to understand this is it tells us in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. What Jesus' brothers were saying to, to him at this point is saying, Jesus, if it's true, if the hype is true, if what everybody is saying about you is true, and you're really this God-man who goes and does these miracles, stop doing it in some backwoods place like the Sea of Galilee. Go down to Jerusalem and make a big show, because that's where all the important people are. Go down there and demonstrate yourself and show yourself to be the Christ, to whoever, whoever it is that you say you are. But the text tells us that the why that people were doing this, or why Jesus' brothers were doing this, is because they didn't believe him. They didn't believe who he was. They thought that what everyone else was saying about him wasn't really true, and that this had just developed into a gigantic story, now a gigantic legend. We began to introduce this idea a couple weeks ago when I um, started to mention this question about the, you know, who is the historical Jesus and the question of the reliability of the New Testament. What I want to do for the next couple of moments is to dive into that response a little bit further than we have in preceding weeks. And to understand, first off, how um, this aspect of Jesus being a legend and why that really does not hold, why that's not why today that that is not a very reasonable position to hold, is first off, we need to understand something about the Holocaust. In the Holocaust, you know, the estimate six million Jews were exterminated under Hitler and all kinds of other atrocities were committed. And yet, the earliest documentation of Holocaust deniers comes in, in 1969 with the publishing of a book called um, The Six Million, uh, called The Myth of the Six Million. And Hogan, the author here, he writes this book that the idea that the Jews were exterminated was a gigantic hoax. It was a gigantic myth. And again, you see this coming up still today, people denying the Holocaust for a variety of different reasons and a variety of different things. But when this book came out, this was 24 years after the end of the war. 24 years. And people were saying, this didn't occur, this didn't happen. And you see it again. I mean, you see it in the news media right now, people denying that whether or not the Holocaust really occurred. And you see it again with, with major aspects of news, you know, major national events, you know, uh, on a less, uh, on a less you know, dramatic note, a less horrific note, you know, there are those who continue to deny whether or not the U.S. actually put people on the moon. Um, and with this, with the moon landings, you know, there are 12 men who walked on the moon. The last one was in 1972. And as early as 1976, people were starting to publish that the whole moon landing thing was a hoax. And that it was all completely made up, and all this supposed evidence for why this was made up. However, neither one of these holds 
The myth of the Holocaust and the myth of the moon landing doesn't hold, it doesn't gain any credibility. Why? Because there are dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses, right? There are thousands of people that say, if you've got a question about this, go talk to them. There are people alive today, connected with our church even, who are in the Holocaust. Go talk to them. Go visit these places yourself. Go examine them yourself. Go see the evidence. Go talk to real people who were there. Go talk to the astronauts who flew the mission. Go talk to the people that were doing all the data collection on this. Go talk to these people um, and go talk to the actual eyewitnesses. And so these theories all fall apart, namely because there are so many different eyewitnesses who say, no, this is what actually happens, and their testimonies and what they say corroborates and verifies one another. When we come to the claims of Jesus, particularly this most astounding claim, that Jesus claims to be God, that he is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate, within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you had the earliest documents of the New Testament circulating. You had the earliest books of the New Testament already written, and they are circulating, and they are being widely circulated throughout Israel, throughout the Middle East, over into, over into um, Asia Minor, and across North Africa. And these documents are being widely circulated. That couldn't happen unless you had people who were verifying. If this was false, you would have had hundreds and thousands of people to say, that's not true. That's not what he said. But instead what you have is that with the New Testament documents, you have them all saying the same thing, that Jesus claimed to be God and that he did these miracles. And what the New Testament documents did at the time of writing is they invited inspection. They said, if you don't believe what we're saying, here are the names of eyewitnesses. Go talk to them. Go ask the questions to them yourselves. So we see this in the beginning of Luke. Luke starts off by telling us, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What is Luke's point? He's saying, I have investigated this. I have gone through and talked to the variety of eyewitnesses so that you would know this. And oh, by the way, here are the eyewitnesses. You can go talk to them yourself if you've got questions. The Apostle Paul in his letter writing does the exact same thing. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the earlier letters of the New Testament written. Paul writes to them and he says, I delivered to you what I received as, what I received as first importance, that Christ died with our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have fallen asleep. What is Paul's point? This isn't just something that one little person is saying to, to create a theory. If you've got doubts and questions about this, there are hundreds of people that will go tell you the exact same thing. And the New Testament was written at a time where there was a widespread corroboration of the account of the eyewitnesses that went on. And it occurred from the earliest formation and the earliest document of Christianity. So if the claim that Jesus said he claimed he was God, did these miracles, if, this was, if he was claiming this and it was false, 
Christianity could never have taken off because this, these claims were so close to the time of the events and there were so many eyewitnesses to verify what had been said. And one of the most significant works in New Testament scholarship in the last 25 years is a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a guy named Richard Balkum. Um, it's an incredible work. It is really, really, really tedious. Um, his scholarship is so accurate and astute that those who are opposed to it aren't even engaging it. They're just ignoring it. But what Balkum lays out in a really compelling and tedious way, if this isn't your thing, is that he lays out just the mounds of evidence that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, and he examines both the internal evidence and the external evidence of other biblical sources, extra-biblical sources, which demonstrate that the Gospel accounts were indeed written by people who saw it firsthand themselves, and their stories confirm one another. What's the point of all this? Some people's response to Jesus is to say, he's just a legend that people made up. However, from the very earliest days of Christianity, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who were saying, no, this is what Jesus said, and this is what Jesus did, and I will be one who will attest that, at the time, attest that it is true. So if you examine the evidence, if you actually examine the evidence, it is strained. It is a strained position to conclude that the followers of Jesus made up the legend that he claimed to be God and he did these miracles. Yet, some still do not accept the simple and obvious conclusion, which is that people who have larger containers eat more popcorn still don't accept the simple and obvious conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God. So other people respond differently. So one group is to say that he was a legend. Another group is to say that he was a deceiver. And we're going to look at two different, we're going to lump two different responses under this one. One response to this comes in verse 20. What they say to Jesus, they said, the crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? You're demon possessed. Basically what they're saying is you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And yeah, there's still people who would try to make that. You know, it's a common, a common uh, homework exercise or common assignment in many college-level psychology classes and psychiatry classes to pick a famous person and assess their mental illness. And so lots of people like to pick Jesus in doing so. And if they wanted to do a little bit of research, you know, they could find a psychiatrist such as William Hurst who would say that, you know, that Jesus was plagued with hallucinations that all of his hallucinations pointed to, quote, his megalomania, which mounted ceaselessly and immeasurably, immeasurably. He concluded that Jesus was paranoid, pure and simple, adding this. Here is his conclusion of who Jesus is. Christ offers, in every respect, an absolutely typical picture of a well-known mental disease. All that we know of him corresponds so exactly to clinical aspects of paranoia that it is hardly conceivable how anybody at all acquainted with mental disorders can entertain the slightest doubt as to the correction of the diagnosis. He's saying if you have any clue about any aspect of mental health, you will of course conclude that Jesus was mentally ill. That is the only reasonable conclusion, he says. What that means is he's saying Jesus was a deceiver. 
Maybe he didn't mean to be, but he was deceived, and he deceived other people. There's others who would respond in verse 12. They say, no, he's just a straight-up deceiver. He is, he's leading people astray. He's not true. He's not trustworthy. But consider these responses of the deceivers and why they're saying this. Is that, yes, it would be possible to diagnose Jesus with a mental illness such as him having a Messiah complex you know that Jesus has the Messiah complex, and you would diagnose him with this because it, the evidence is very strong that Jesus actually believed that he was God and that he was the Messiah, but you can only diagnose him with the Messiah complex if he's not really the Messiah, right? If he actually is the Messiah, then you can't diagnose him with the Messiah complex as a mental illness because that's actually who he is. And if you're claiming that Jesus is the one who leads, deceives people, and that because he claims to be God, he deceives people and leads people away from God, that's only true if he's not really God. And if you hold to either one of these claims, if you hold to either one of them, and to make such claims, is that if Jesus really is God, to claim that he is not and to assert that he is not only leads you away from God. And so your claim actually moves you in the opposite direction. The third group of people that we'll look at here is those who want to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. They're the, you know, the, the bless your heart view of Jesus. Okay, bless his heart. <laughs> Comes in verse 12. There's those who would say, well, he's a good man. And others would say, when they heard the word, no, this, this really is the prophet. He's a good teacher, you know. I mean, give the guy a break. He's going around. He's healing people. He's helping people. He's trying his best. You know, he's wanting to point people to God. He's telling people about God. I find the benefit of the doubt response interesting because today, secular people are hesitant, are still, even if they don't like Christianity, People are, secular people are still hesitant to push a negative image onto Jesus Christ. They're, they're hesitant to say that he was a bad guy, that he was a bad dude. And they'd rather absolve him of responsibility for the things that he said and did than actually attribute them to himself, attribute them to Jesus. So, for example, if I directly quote Jesus on some of the hard things that Jesus says, like Matthew 5... You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Or something like Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, in terms of the standard of moral perfection. You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or if you consider some of other Jesus' statements, do you not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, fear him, God, who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Or another hard saying of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what I find is that what secular people today do is they would rather, they, they don't want to push a negative view onto Jesus. And so if I directly give some of these quotes like I just did, and you're here, and, and if there's people who are, aren't Christians and they're attending our worship service, and maybe that's you today, people are far more likely to say, wow, this church takes some really hard views on things. 
this, you know, that, that preacher, he holds to some really, really radical views. And so people would much rather, rather blame me than Jesus for the things that Jesus himself says. Is that they, they want to absolve Jesus. And I think the reason for that is because it's a whole lot easier to dismiss me than to deal with Jesus himself and to deal with his audacious claims that he makes. You take these different groups. How do you respond? He's a legend. He's a deceiver. Give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a, he's a good man. However you look at it, Jesus is a challenge. He's a challenge. I mean, what do you do with a man who is claiming to be God? Various explanations work for part of the data. You know, in verse 32, what happens is the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and so they sent chief priests, and they sent officers to arrest him. What do you do with Jesus? Let's eradicate him. Let's arrest him. But the officers go, and they come to Jesus, and they say, they return back, and they say to the officers, why didn't you arrest them? Why did you not bring them? And the officer's response, the police force response is, no one ever spoke like this man. The explanation that he's a deceiver, or he's a blasphemer, it doesn't add up. We can't arrest this guy. He's not doing any, anything wrong. And so the psychiatrist is partly correct. That Jesus makes these megalomaniacal claims. They're outrageous. No one ever said the things that Jesus did and wasn't considered a fool or an idiot. Those who hold that Jesus, give Jesus the benefit of the doubt is correct. No one ever did teaching like this man. And it continues today. That today, if you asked anybody, who are the most influential people in the history of the world? On everybody's list, Jesus would be in the top five, top, top ten. Whether you like him or not. I mean, he's maybe influence more people in the world than anybody else. And of the people on that list, he is the only one who claims to be God. He is the one who is the centerpiece of the greatest religion in the history of the world, or at least the, the largest religion in the history of the world. He's got established followers in every country of the globe. His words have been translated into over 3,000 languages. For centuries and centuries and millennia, People around the globe of different cultures, different languages, including people in this room, all say the same thing, which is that the living and resurrected Jesus Christ has changed my life. Not just his teaching, but he has personally, he has changed my life. What do you do with that challenge? I mean, nobody who wants to have a a well-thought-out or educated understanding, an educated view of the world can ignore the teachings and claims of Jesus. It would be foolish to do so. But he is a challenge to both non-Christians and to Christians. You see, the challenge for non-Christians is this. What do you do with Jesus? If you, I would challenge you that if you examine the evidence, if you actually sit down and you actually examine the evidence, and I know that you know, a lack of evidence can cause people to lose faith. Overwhelming evidence does not cause people to have faith. But I would challenge you that if you examine the evidence, there is an obvious and simple answer. It's that people who have larger containers of popcorn eat more popcorn. The obvious and simple answer 
is that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the Christ, that he is the God-man, that he is the Savior who died on the cross and rose from the grave, that he is the Lord of the universe. That is the reasonable conclusion. But you have to decide. But Jesus is also a challenge to Christians. Tim Keller says, here's the challenge to Christians. Here's a test for this. He says, ask the average church-going Christian. He said, if you ask the average church-goer, tell me about your life and how you related to Jesus. He said, most every Christian is a moderate. And they would even say, yes, I'm a moderate. They would pride themselves on this. See, most everyone is a moderate. They're not scouring their Bible every day. They're not examining their lives regularly and chucking out things that are contrary to the life that Christ wants for them. They're not rigorously adding things into their life that Christ wants. They're not taking you know, their, their, their time and saying, waking up each day and saying, Lord, how would I use my time today for you? When they get their paycheck each week, they don't, or every, when they get their paycheck, they don't look at it and say, Lord, this is your money. How can I use my money for you? Because you are the God, you are the Lord of heaven and earth. He says they're moderates. They're not wrestling to push his values into every, and priorities into every part of their life. No, he says most church-going Christians have a Jesus who says, just try your best. That's all I ask. I'll, I'll be there when you fall down. And so here's his conclusion, Keller says. Anybody who is, a, who is a moderate in his reaction to Jesus is, reaction, is reacting to a fiction. Anybody who is a moderate in his reaction to Jesus Christ is reacting to, reacting to a fiction because that Jesus doesn't exist. Because Jesus requires us to come to him completely and wholly on his terms. He does not come to us on ours. He requires an all-or-nothing response that we come to him on his terms. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The, the Silver Chair, towards the end of it, tells a story about one of the children, Jill, and she sees a lion. The lion is Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and she's scared out of her wits. And she runs into the forest to run away from the lion. And she keeps running, and she keeps running, and she keeps running so hard to get away from him that she wears herself out and she is just about to die of thirst, or so she thinks. And she hears a, a, a gurgling brook in the distance. And so she approaches this brook in order to quench her thirst, and she's almost ready to go to the brook, when on the grass before her is the very same lion. And she pauses and she looks at the lion, and the lion says to her, are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, 
said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I, I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had, she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. When you come to Jesus Christ, you come on the lion's terms. You come not with a moderate response. You come not saying, not asking the lion, can I just ignore this aspect of who you are and how you'd want me to respond? Can I just ignore your lordship in this area of my life? And he says there is no other stream. He, he calls us to an all or nothing response that Jesus is God and the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. And what this means right now at this moment is that there are some here today who need to realize that there is a lion, that there is a God with whom they need to reconcile. And the only way to do so is through Jesus Christ. There are others here this morning who need to understand that if he is a lion, he requires an all or nothing response. And there are still others of us here this morning who need to rejoice and rejoice again that he is the lion, that he is the God who gave his life for the life of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord Jesus, you are the lion of Judah and you are not a tame lion. And Lord, while we might come up with a variety of explanations of who you are, you know, you're the senile old grandfather who always gives us extra candy. You're the, you're the one who, however we would define it. And the reality is, is that you are the one who defines who you are. And you are the one who dictates the terms to which we come to you. So, Lord, we pray that by your spirit and by your grace, you would move us to give all of who we are and all of our life to you because you indeed are the Lord of heaven and earth. It is in your name we pray. Amen.